This episode is made possible by PwC. When unprecedented times are all the time, it's time to start walking the talk. Leaders like you turn to PwC to see and stay ahead. Upskill your workforce, use intelligent automation, and transform big ideas into breakthrough outcomes. Explore the human-led, tech-powered solutions that help you thrive. It's all part of the new equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. The primary reason why the individual citizens of a country create a political structure is a subconscious wish or desire to perpetuate their own dependency relationship of childhood. Simply put, they want a human god to eliminate all risk from their lives, pat them on the head, kiss their bruises, put a chicken on every dinner table, close their bodies, tuck them into bed at night, and tell them that everything will be all right when they wake up in the morning. This public demand is incredible, so the human god, the politician, meets incredibility with incredibility by promising the world and delivering nothing. So who is the bigger liar, the public or the godfather? All revolutions have been led by young people. If you just think of the TV images of whether it's Tiananmen Square or whether it's the uh, revolts in Central America or Europe, it's the young people, it's the college people who are more principled and not locked in and they're not embedded with the government. They are the ones who are concerned about the future because the future is theirs. My research has shown at this point that the future laid out for us may be just about impossible to change. I do not agree with the means by which the powerful few have chosen for us to reach the end. I do not agree that the end is where we should end at all. But unless we can wake the people from their sleep, nothing short of civil war will stop the planned outcome. It's the National Collective Consciousness Show with Dee Dee Farrell in Portland, Oregon, Jim Condit Jr. in Cincinnati, Ohio, Steve Harris in Charlotte, North Carolina. Now, live from Evanston, Illinois, your host, Fred Smart. Hey, good evening, everyone. Uh, tonight, uh, just like every Thursday, uh, certain things happen that are unique and special to every show that we have. Uh, the timing of it, the, the context of it, the background of it, the subject matter. Uh, tonight is, is, is one of those watershed calls that brings a lot from our past as, as a community and as research and as causes of action into a central core point, the point of the sphere that we've been all uh, made aware of uh, over many, many years uh, thanks to the presentations uh, of our special guest tonight, uh, Pat Riot, and what he's done tonight prior to the call, he sent out uh, an 89-page pamphlet or document. It's like a small book uh, in full color that Steve, Dede, Betty, and I received today. He sent it out yesterday, FedEx, and he asked us uh, to at least go to the first seven to eight pages 
and which I did prior to the call. I had a McDonald's here. I laid out everything in a big table and opened it up, methodically went page one, two, three, up to eight. And I had uh, already gone through some of this before uh, in a digital version they had sent me. <clears throat> but uh, it's really a great tool to have uh, something like this in your quiver because uh, it is the point of the spear. It does drive everything. This is a war machine that was constructed artfully, uh, ingeniously, evilly, uh, many, many, many years ago. And uh, we have been educated by Pat's work on this call over many years. And just yesterday, a little bit of a sign of the contextual aspect of today's date, 21 Republicans stormed that goofy skiff in, in the basement of, of Congress. Uh, they're trying to do the same thing uh, that they've been doing to overthrow our president. And, and finally, some of these Republicans got their gonads up and, and, and marched down there felt like marching for Ron Paul back in the day when I saw the videos. So hats off to the Republicans, Matt Gates, and all those guys who had the guts to go down there. I hope we see more of that kind of activity. And uh, just tonight, the call is number 619, and that's a prime number. Uh, I, I love these numbers, but it's the prime of the phrase, the word of God. The word of God is a phrase factors back to 619. And one of the things that factors back yesterday when the Republicans stormed Congress, uh, I, I thought to myself the time that we served the right to petition lawsuit back in July 19th of 2004. So I calculated the number of days yesterday all the way back. And it corresponds to the factor of 929, which is the phrase free from fear. So we have the word of God tonight. And we have free from fear yesterday in that cause of action that connects us all back to the march and the serving of the petition for We the People Congress on July 19th, 2004. Betty was there. I was there. Uh, over 1,000, 2,000 people were there on a, a glorious sunny day. So we are marching against the Federal Reserve. We are marching against all of these things. And we're talking about the genesis of all of these things in the work uh, that was shared with us tonight in the presentation. So, Patrick, that, that's, my, uh, that's my introduction. Thanks for coming back. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate the thoughtfulness of you sending this out. And with, with solemn seriousness, we all take this uh, very seriously. Uh, it, it's, it's information that's life-changing uh, when we become aware of stuff like this. It was by design a war machine, as you as you erase R O T H for Rothschild and insert W A R S for R O T H. It's a war child's the protocols of war. It's all in here. So really appreciate it again. Well, again, I appreciate you being I appreciate being here and having the opportunity. Again, one of the frustrations I have is I don't know how many folks I'm speaking to, whether it's two or 222, but that's okay, even if I only have you four as an audience. The, um, the work that's gone into this over 15 years has not culminated yet in a finished work. This is a, uh, this is a restatement of a document that has been declared to be anti-Semitic and a forgery since 18, I guess 1910, 1911, when it was first allegedly discovered. 
Um, but before I begin, it's important to understand something. Mm-hmm. We we live we live in a contemporaneous world through our own lives, and people have lived before us in previous generations, and we may have been alive then. But we we come of age at a certain point in our life, and um, we are vaguely aware of what took place in, in the recent generation uh, or the recent two generations. And then we do become aware of what's going on in our life and in and around our lives, and then we die. It's a horror. The human body only goes into its 70s and 80s, and we die. We become conscious of what's going on with a... Um, uh, uh, well, the word I'm looking for is uh, a comparison to what, like, we're living today. I, I joke with people and I say, I live now, and I am old enough to remember when sex was just a noun. Today, oh my God, oh my God, it's got so many other meanings. This document that you've got has been. I guess it was given to me in 2002, about 2002. And uh, I have a a 1922, a copy of a 1922 manuscript of the Protocols of the Meetings of the Learned Elders of Zion. And it actually has a 1922 copyright on the pages. It has been declared to be anti-Semitic because it says things that are allegedly been planned by Jews in years or in century, a century past. But what it does is it shuts down all temperate discussion of what's actually contained in it. And it's declared to be a document that creates anti-Semitism. This document, and this is challenging for anybody that's listening that doesn't know about the document or what is written in the piece that I've given you, is that On the surface, if you read it, you can get to hate the Jews. I guess in some respects, it could be viewed as anti-Semitic. I'm going to jump around a lot on you here. You're a test in a way because I don't know how to shape this in such a way as it's simple. It's a very complex situation because brilliant minds have worked on this for centuries, for actually centuries, and they're Rothschild people and people who are in the employ of Rothschild. In, I guess it was 1967, there was a meeting in the Adirondacks in New York. And all the criminal family godfathers were at that meeting. It was an old farmhouse, somewhat rural, long distance from any city. In the Adirondacks, I want to say it was up below Utica, New York. But it was remote, and there'd be no reason for anybody to go look at it. But sure enough, a couple of state troopers wound up being given a tip. They showed up, and they took everybody out of the house. There was probably 30 men in there. They were all mafia captains, mafia dons. Until that date, the assumption was Italians were a confederacy of criminals. All of the Italians, the Italians, big quotes around the word the Italians, or the two words, the Italian. In, in, the, in uh, August of 67, that changed. 
they found that there was a select group of Italians that really did head up criminal families that were predominantly Siciliano or Italian, but mostly Siciliano. And if you talk to an Italian or Sicilian, they really don't like to be uh, identified as each other. So we look at them, if we're not Italians, we look at them as one of the same. But the mafia, the Cosa Nostra, were Siciliano. They go back hundreds or hundreds of years. And it's our thing, our family. But until that event in the Adirondacks in, 18, in uh, 1967, we looked at the Italians. Law enforcement looked at the Italians as all part of a criminal syndicate. They were all bad people. You put your finger up, bend your nose, and say, yeah, he's a bad guy. You'd look at a kid in the eighth grade and say, yeah, his father is Italian. Yeah, he's part of the... And everybody who was Italian took a hard hit. Just like when we talk about the Jews. The Jews. Bastards. The dirty Jews. They screwed us. They did this. They did that. This has taken me a good four of my 15 years of research to reach the point where I can say to you that the Jews are a group of people. Within them, there is a sinister confederacy of Jews. Just like there is a sinister confederacy among the Italians or the Sicilians. So when we get accused of being anti-Semitic, it's important that we understand the Jews are innocent people. We're not being anti-Semitic, and you don't let anybody ever accuse you of it, because once you understand what's in these 89, 88 pages, you understand there's a small cadre, a small group of people are Jewish. They run our bond markets. They run our national banks, our central banks. They inveigle themselves into political positions, and they run decisions that run our military, just like the Rothschild family and their banking family connections did in the early 1800s. They were positioned in five kingdoms throughout Europe, infiltrated those kingdoms, and they created war amongst those kingdoms. Kings pissed away every penny they ever got so when a war happened, didn't have the money to hire the mercenaries to defend their borders. It was an exigent necessity to control or to keep the kingdom next door from coming in and taking over your territory. So where'd they go? They went to the Rothschild banking family, who in fact instigated the war, who in fact ran the sinister confederacy of Jews that were sitting in places throughout the world that created these wars. But here we are today, in 1919, 2020, coming up, we're still accusing the Jews, and we're still guilty of anti-Semitism. The fact of the matter is the Jews have nothing to do with it. Do they know about what Rothschild is doing? I'll bet you anything they do. <laughs> just like most Italian families 
who were decent, hardworking people, knew about Uncle Tony being part of the Cousin Nostra. But were they involved? You've seen The Godfather. You saw it where someday The Godfather will require a favor from you. Tony, who was being told this, he made pizza down the street. He never did anything bad, but he knew about The Godfather. That was where and is where we can look at the Jews today because they know about this and they don't talk about it because they're threatened. Are we going to castrate them? Are we going to criticize them? Well, I guess we could. That doesn't make them bad people. So if I do anything at the outset of this discussion, it's important to distinct, distinguish between the Jews. And as Rothschild said, not Rothschild, but Winston Churchill said, in April of 1920, in an article he published or he wrote for the London Daily Herald, it's a sinister confederacy among the Jews. It's not the Jews. So if I have anything to make a point about tonight, and if anybody here is running around saying the Jews did this, the Jews did that, and you want to say it, but you're afraid to because you're going to be declared an anti-Semite, understand the Jews didn't do it. The people who did it were Jewish, or they were Jews. And there's a huge distinction between saying the Jews did something, but those who did it were Jews. Understand that. That's extremely important. The anti-Semitism that's rising today amongst us in the world is devastating and it will eclipse anything that Hitler did and it will set huge amounts of people in a country against the government who will try to protect the Jews, rightfully so, not for reasons they understand. And it may create the civil war that Rothschild wants to see in our country. But Rothschild's working many angles to create this civil war as he did in 1840s and 1845, when the Civil War in the United States arose. In 1837, Rothschild sent August Schoenberg to the United States to create a civil war between the North and the South. He succeeded at it. I won't go into the details. The details are there for investigation. As you'll not, you'll not find any publication that will bring out the details like I can outline them. There was a civil war created between the North and the South. Cotton and slavery were a major component. But that civil war was meant to divide this country so that part of our country could be taken over by Europe, England, and the other part of our country west of the Mississippi could be taken over by France. They failed. It is believed that Lincoln was partner to this without knowledge of what was taking place and abandoned it, took, let's say, comfort in pursuing a war against the South and to consolidate the nation. He did not want to see the nation broken up. But that's a loose-knit piece of research I have, and I don't know enough about it to really expound on it. But I will tell you, the evidence is there to look like Lincoln may have been duped for a while, but then worked his way out of it and then managed to win the war and consolidate the nation. And that was Rothschild's biggest loss. 
Rothschild tried to form a central bank here prior to Lincoln, and the Civil War was coincidental to the failure to get a central bank on the part of Rothschild. Rothschild did it twice with the bank, the first bank of the United States and the second bank of the United States. All of this is happening with regards to banking because debt is no, debt's the single best weapon to control a country and to control the country's military. So that's what has happened over the last 150 years. If I have no message at all to give you other than the Jews are not the culprits or the guilty party. There's a syndicate, a confederacy, and Churchill did name them. He called it a sinister confederacy among the Jews, 1920, in the London Daily Herald. All you have to do, if anybody's taking notes, write down Bolshevism versus Zionism and put Churchill, and you'll get to read Churchill's four-page article. And the analogy in that article lines up perfectly with today's analogy. Now, this all lines up with what we're watching in the papers today. Some of what I wanted to get into this pamphlet for you, Fred, and Didi, and Steve, and Betty, was an article written in 2000, and I think it was about 12, maybe seven years ago, a Jewish kid who wrote to the Los Angeles Times, an innocent kid who got really pissed off when somebody said the Jews do not control Hollywood or media. Well, he went and did all of the research, and he demonstrated in a one-and-a-half-page column that, in fact, the Jews control virtually all of our media, all of our entertainment, anything that, in fact, can influence our people and our culture on a macro scale, on a huge scale. Because anything that came out of comes out of Hollywood, and anybody that goes to see these entertaining films is diverted. There's their cultural loyalties, their, their religious loyalties, their familial loyalties, they're all diverted, they're perverted, they're, they're changed. That's what Hollywood has allowed these people who control our culture to do to our nation. That's why our families are eroded. That's why divorce has climbed up. That's why children in high school want to become girls instead of the boy they are. All of this has happened because this clever, sinister confederacy among the Jews has controlled our culture. If you read this pamphlet that I've sent to you, Steve, Steve, Didi, Betty, Fred, you will see a specific lecture dedicated to telling you exactly what I've just said. Exactly. The perversion of a culture. We will control it. And they've done it. And they're heading for civil war in this nation. Because the civil war will perpetuate, not perpetuate, but will complete the coup that they started. Hillary was supposed to have been elected. We all know that. It was expected. Well, the wild card came in. This idiot we call Trump, the president, he is a freaking idiot. Every time he shoots his mouth off, I get sick. He's doing great things. He's doing common sense things. But he's got, I don't know what he's got. He's got some kind of a deformed ego that he's got to say these stupid things that he says, and he's going to cut his own throat. And in so doing, 
Americans liable to do, leave the door open for some one of these other people to come in and take our nation down. But had he not been elected, had he not been the accidental president that he is, Hillary Clinton, who was in Rothschild's pocket, by the way, would have continued to devolve our nation a point we wouldn't have been able to recognize it in the next 10 or 15 years. In eight years, a single president can do an enormous amount of damage. Obama was put in office by David Axelrod, an agent of, ex, of, of Rothschild, maybe, maybe not, but definitely a Rothschild agent. He was a, he was a, he's a Jew, which doesn't make him bad, but he's a member of that sinister confederacy, and he is an Israeli citizen. And it was through his efforts that over six years, found Obama and put him into office. And Obama to set the wheels in motion for Hillary to be able to come in, maybe put the KO punch to us, maybe not, but set it up for her to come along and continue doing what they were doing behind the scenes. Our intelligence agencies are now almost fully co-opted. Do they know it? Nah. Are people in charge of those agencies that do know it? Absolutely. Absolutely. They know they're there doing things that are anti-American. So what happened is Trump is in here and he's slowly learning, but our intelligence agencies had basically taken the country over in one form or another, not overtly, but in one form or another. And a coup had a fact, a fact been affected years and years and years ago. Now Trump comes along as an accidental president. He begins to disrupt it. So the only way they can get him out is through whatever device they can find, and now it's an impeachment. How idiotic. But every time the man opens his goddamn mouth, he makes it easier for them to attack him, and, and easier for people who might love what he's doing to dislike him. So we live in a very strange time, and the, the document that I sent you, the pamphlet I sent to you, Fred, um, is an ancillary, it's a collateral document to my main work. My main work is called 343, the book. And 343 is an, is an honor, it's a memoriam of the 343 American firemen that were killed that day by Israel. Because Israel is, in fact, the armed, who do you call it? It's the spear, it's the, it's the tip of the spear of the Rothschild family. And what they do. Rothschild have been looked at as bankers. They're not bankers. They're warriors. They create war, create debt that war creates, and then they move their people into better and better positions within the governments they're concerned about. Europe is, Europe is lost. Uh, they all think they're fighting individually, but they've got one union, the European Union. Um, I just found something out yesterday from my daughter who lives over there in Paris. Um, the the trading mechanisms that are permitted over there that are my son-in-law trades, he day trades. And the trading mechanisms over there are not regulated. Your banks and your stock market are together. So if you can, in fact, cause a distortion in the market like we had in 1927 through 29 and have a collapse, um, the banks collapse with the stock brokerage companies. And we have to look back as you read this in the first few pages, you'll find my term 
Rothschild uses performance bonds as a weapon. That's his, that's his weapon, a performance bond. And most people don't understand. What's a performance bond? Well, a performance bond is a loan. A loan that doesn't perform or no, it fails. But the key here, Rothschild creates performance bonds. They're going to fail 10 and 12 years into the future. Nobody can see it coming. Now, the margin account in the 1920s was where a person had 100000 or a $1 million in their bank account. The bank said, hey, look, we've got a brand new deal for you. We're going to lend you half of what you have in equities in stock. We're going to lend it to you for 1% a year. You're making 2 and 3% a month. We're going to give you this money 1% a year. People said, you're kidding me. You're going to give me... You're going to give me a half a million dollars, I have a million dollars with you, and you're going to give me another half a million for 1% a year? Yeah, what's the catch? No catch, no catch. Take the money, put it in there. The only thing we can do is, is tell you, though, you've got to be able to maintain the proportion. So if you've got a million and we give you a half a million, and you run that up to $2 million, guess what? We're going to give you now half of the $2 million. Oh, wait a minute. Half a million is ours already. So we're going to give you another quarter of a million dollars for 1% a year so you can continue to invest. That means you've got 750 of our money and a million 250 of your own money. And you're on your way to being a billionaire. The margin account took Wall Street by storm in the 20s. Every investor, uh, maybe not all of them, but investors were margining their accounts and borrowing money from the bank, who was, in fact, their stockbroker. Bank and the stockbrokers were combined, as they now are again in Europe. Tells me something to watch for, and I don't know when or where or how it'll happen. Everything went great. The investors in the United States borrowed their margin, their 50%. They said, but what's the downside? Well, the downside is if your stocks drop in value, you've got to tell us what stocks to sell so that the percentage of our investment in your account maintains the 50%. So if your investment goes from $2 million and we, owe seven, we own seven fifty of that and it drops down to $1.5 million, well, you've got to sell off a quarter of a million dollars worth of stock. Tell us what stock to sell and we'll sell it. Oh. Okay, that sounded plausible. They said, now, if we can't get in touch with you, you also have signed off that we have the indiscriminate right to sell whatever we feel is necessary to protect the bank's interests. And the investor said, oh, oh okay, no, we can get in touch with each other. I don't see any problem there. I'll tell you what I want to sell. The only thing nobody knew is that the market was controlled the same group of people in the same concept that Rothschild controlled the bond market and the London bond market when Napoleon beat when Napoleon was beaten by Wellington. Rothschild stood against the wall that day when they found out well they didn't find out, they were afraid that Napoleon had beaten Wellington. So everybody came to the market in, in London that day in 1812 or 1807, whenever the heck it was. 
And the first thing they did, not knowing what happened in Europe that day earlier on the field at Waterloo, they watched what Mr. Rothschild did because he knew. All of the savvy investors came to the market that morning. Rothschild's messenger system was a day ahead of anything that London had. Rothschild knew that Wellington had been successful and had defeated Napoleon. And all of the bondholders in England were afraid that if Napoleon won, he'd be across the channel in a day and he would take over Britain and their bonds would be worthless. So they're all wondering what's going on. Mr. Rothschild knows. Let's watch him. Rothschild just nodded. And before you know it, all the people that worked for Rothschild were selling bonds at 10 o'clock in the morning. By 10.30, everybody was watching and saying, I got to get out of this. I got to get out of this. It was a rout. Every bond was for sale. Every pound turned into tuppence, pennies. Funny thing happened about 11.15 in the morning, though. A group of people unknown to the market began buying everything they could, tuppence. By 1 o'clock in the afternoon, Rothschild owned every bond for a fraction of a penny of its value. And by 4 o'clock in the afternoon, London was advised that Wellington had defeated Napoleon, and Rothschild now owned the Bank of England. It was that experience for Rothschild in 1804-1812 that taught him the value of knowing what's going on with a performance bond in advance of its time. The margin account was created in 20, and he knew that they could go in and destroy the market own whatever they wanted to own, as well as when they did the subprime mortgage-backed security, which is my area of real research, 9-11 created the ramp on the market. That's more complicated than I can do over the telephone. That is in my book. That's not in the book you guys have got. Rothschild uses performance bonds to take down nations and companies. And for the biggest record, in case no one knows, most important performance bond we know of, we all know of, we handle every day in our pocket. It's a note. It's called a Federal Reserve note. It has no gold behind it. it. has no backing except the good faith of the American community. Good faith and I forget the other language. So that bond, that performance bond known as the Federal Reserve Note, is the ultimate weapon. When it will be executed, I don't know. But right now, what you're seeing take place is his alternate path to taking our nation over. Chuck Schumer is an Israeli citizen. Adam Schiff, relative of Jake Schiff, took and supported the creation of the Federal Reserve in the 1900s. Adam Schiff is an Israeli citizen. Once they're a citizen of the state of Israel, they're beholden to the creator of the state of Israel. That was the creator, that was a recipient of the Balfour Declaration in 1917, which was, I think it was Nathan, it may have been 
forget really the first name, but it was a Rothschild. So as Israeli citizens, they're more more beholden to their country of, let's say, support or origin or wherever you want to call it, than they are to any nation that they happen to be functioning in a government for, whether it's in South America, in Europe, or happens to be here on our shores in the United States. So Rothschild, when you read the third or the fourth page, let's see, we go to page one, two, three, four, five. Go to six, we get a Rothschild, banker or warrior. I hope I've clarified for you, he's not a banker, he's a warrior. We go to the next page, we go to warfare, and we go conventional versus Rothschild. I hope when you finish that page, you understand that Rothschild's warriors are all in civilian clothing. They occupy seats of various agencies in our government, law firms, and corporations. If you think Disney is taken over by people who happen to be Jews for no reason at all, you're crazy. Disney's culture-bending entertainment was a device made to make our children more liberal. Who controls the education process in our better colleges? They're going to be Jews? Yes. They're going to be Rothschildian Jews or Rothschilds Jews. They're not going to be the Jews. Unfortunately, I believe, and I can't prove, but I believe most Jews understand a good deal, not all, of what's taking place in our nation. I would not condemn them for it because if they step out of line, they commit suicide, strangely enough. They're economically deprived, they're challenged, they're destroyed. So they're kept in line. I'm going to take a breath. Anybody have any questions? Yeah, Pat. Uh, on page, uh, you're talking about page, uh, yeah, on page six, could you just yeah. clarify something? Paragraph sure. one, two, three, four, five. In bold font, it says rarely, rarely in front, but hidden two, three, or further position from behind. Now, the next sentence, it says, financing ceased upon the prospective victor's agreement to pay the debt of the vanquished. Could you explain that real quick? Sure. Well, you've got to go to Europe to learn that. And uh, that's, that's, a, that's a well-known facet of Rothschild, but it doesn't mean anything unless you put it together with the larger picture I've painted. Okay. Um, put yourself in Rothschild's position. He decides, he decides he's not a banker, but he's going to use banking as a tool of, of war, okay? Just like uh, Tiller the Hun uses spears, Rothschild's going to use debt and credit as a tool of war. And he looks over the scene and he says, you know, Ottoman Empire is here. I create a war over here, and I can get this Turkish Empire to go to war with this particular group. Or I can get William of Hess to go to war over here with this group. And, you know, they used to fight all the time. And they'd fight over various things. At the end of the fighting, they would have a larger population pay taxes to support their lifestyle, their materialism, or their next war, right? So... Rothschild used to start the war. He may have three combatants because his three boys, five, three of his five boys would be in these three areas, and then they would have their messengers and, and uh, intrigue 
and they would set the wheels in motion to have one kingdom competitive to or offended by, and before you know it, they'd fester up a war inside of two or three years. Success, big go. Well, William of Hesse didn't have enough money, or King James didn't have enough money, so they would lend him the money. Well, you know, in a war, you've only got one winner. When the winner wins in a war, especially back in the 17 and 1800s, they take possession of the booty territory. The territory has a unique component as human beings living on it. Taxpayers takes us into the income tax, the 1040 we send every year. Brings us from there to here, but I won't take you here yet. We'll just stay back where your question zeroed in. The Rothschild was very savvy, and he said, you know, we're going to let Napoleon win this one. But, but we can't let Alsace-Lorraine become a, a subordinate to France. Or maybe some other component of Europe. I, I picked bad geography. I'm not good on this geography. But if Napoleon was to beat Germany or one of the kings beat another country, and the other country had borrowed Rothschild's money. Well, Rothschild is down maybe two million guilders or kapuchniks or whatever the currency was. And remember, the difference between currency and money is vast. But whatever the, the currency was, in those days, it was hard gold. It was hard metal. The Rothschild would lend money to both kingdoms. Each of the kingdoms didn't know they were borrowing money from the same source. They didn't. Rothschild had determined earlier on who was going to be the victor. And unless something strange happened during the process, that would be the way it would go. But if he let that happen, King would automatically know he won because his generals were victorious. So what would happen is the lender would go to the king maybe a month, maybe two months for the end of the war, and he'd sit down and he'd say, you know, we've watched what you've been doing with your battle. You're victorious in so many places, but you're weak over here. I think what we can do is create an environment to guarantee you to be the victor. If that timing was appropriate, the king would sit and say, what? How can you do that? He said, well, I can't do it. But I think we have enough clout to mislead and to um, inappropriately steer the other side so that you can move in and you can win. And the king would sit, and the vanity of the king would say, if you could do that, that would be wonderful. Well, I'll tell you what. If we can make this happen, you'd be willing to pay the debts of that particular kingdom? Absolutely. If we can make this happen, we're going to request something special of you. What's that? To be a good king, not change the borders. Show your greatness, your compassion. Let that country continue on. 
Grow your adultness and thrive. We'll put everything we have at risk to make it happen that you're the victor. Well, kings are small people. <clears throat> and more often than not, Rothschild would elicit an agreement from a king, if you can make me the victor, and it could very well be that he hedged his bet by making this deal with both kings. Yeah, yeah. And when that king, when that king won, he was responsible for paying the debts of the vanquished, which was good for Rothschild, kept his money intact. But something else far more important used to happen. Just like we do when we beat countries in Europe, we don't take Japan over. We don't take over Germany, do we? We leave them there for their autonomy, don't we? Their self-respect, their point of origin, their history, history, their culture. Rothschild did the same thing in his arguments or his, his deals with the kings. So that when a king won, he didn't take over the other territory. He never became so big that in the next conflict, he didn't have to borrow money. The next conflict would come along 80, 40, 25 years later. He'd still have to borrow money because he didn't double, triple, or quadruple the size of his taxpayer base. It was a brilliant move down through the centuries, plural, and it was one of the things that sustained him. When he viewed what was going on with the colonies in the United States, or what was going to become the United States, he said, if these people ever create a country over there, they're going to be the most powerful military in the world. I want that military for mine. And that was why he attempted to create the Federal Reserve under Lincoln and on two other occasions and didn't get it done finally, though, but he did get it done in 1913 under Woodrow Wilson. As most people look for takeover of a nation by way of war and military. He did it by culture and brains and debt. And our country is run by that son of a bitch. You talk about evil, there's no more evil than the Rothschild family on the face of the earth. No more evil, nothing more evil. And they're dangerous because they're brilliant in what they do. And anybody that underestimates them makes the large mistake that people have made over 200 years with them. The thing is to rebrand them for what they are. They're war makers. They're warriors. They're not bankers. Our country has been a great risk. It has been a coup. They are here. They're not out. They're not out in the open. They're not seen by anybody yet. And if they're, if they're successful, they may never be seen. We will have a materialistic culture to match what was going on in Berlin before the war. The sex, the materialism, yeah. uh, all of it, all of it that took place, they say, was the Jews. It wasn't the Jews. It was all a small group of people that happened to have been Jews. And they destroyed, they destroyed Germany, caused that war. Hitler, I believe, I don't know, but I believe Hitler learned some of this. And he learned that this came from the Jews that came across the border from Russia in the 1917 revolution. They were not refugees, all of them. Many of them were invaders. 
traveling with bags of clothing as though they were refugees. And then they instituted the banking systems that they did. They lent money. They became very prosperous. And slowly but surely, Germany changed at a lower level. And Hitler found or felt or whatever. And he blamed all the Jews. He made a big mistake. I'm partially to believe that Rothschild permitted, if not sanctioned, the the millions of Jews that were killed. That's why I brand Rothschild as the the world's largest, most important anti-Semite. He talks in these protocols, these 24 lectures, he talks about how much sacrifice the people of the Jewish faith gave and that he was their savior in the end. Now, you've got a megalomaniacal family that doesn't give a rat's ass about the Jews other than that the Jews are the, they're the laborers, they're carrying the, they're the, the water boy, they're the... the, uh, the um, the slaves to the Rothschild family. And if we could wake up the Jews to this particular fact, Rothschild would be finished. I don't know if Rothschild could be finished in any other way than if he was abandoned by his own people. And that would be one of my goals, doing what I do. But if we, if we include all of the Jews, any accusations we make, we'll never manage to separate the Jews from this evil group of people. Very, very important. Very important from my perspective. Any any other questions? Uh, uh, we don't want to have, have it. Uh, for those listening out there, we normally have questions and answers, uh, uh, co- comments at the end of the show. We're just uh, responding to Patrick's appeal. Uh, uh, midstream here. So, if anybody else yeah, wants to make a comment, is Doctor yeah. Doctor? Go ahead. Uh, that's just Steve. I got, I got one. Uh, I know Doctor Sam's got. I'm glad you got on here, Sam. But uh, Patrick, thanks again. Yeah. One through the book, but yeah. uh, I, I'm curious about. Uh, so, in other words, it kind of caught everybody off as far as Rothschilds goes, and and his whole group when Trump got in there, that was not expected. That was that was the main thing that, that you were laying out on the get-go. That that was totally... Un- I think... Yeah, I think he's an accidental president. And the interesting thing here is that... Um, and let me back up a second. If people develop power or influence in our country, they become a target. They become a, a, a sinister confederacy target. Michael Jackson was a target. He was assigned a rabbi who became his confidant. That was Rabbi Shmuley. Because Michael Jackson had immense power in moving the culture in one direction or another direction. Rabbi Shmuley was attached to him, and it was great for Rabbi Shmuley. Eventually, Michael Jackson began to incite and complain that the Jews were taking his money and they were trying to destroy him. And oddly enough, Michael Jackson died. And he died at the hands of another black man, a black doctor who overdosed him. So these people are very clever, extremely clever. They work, they work at a criminal level that's incomprehensible to today's law enforcement. But I want to go back. What, what was it you said again, Steve? Bring me back just a little bit because I think I got off track here. 
Yeah, basically, as far as uh, the mistake, as far as they didn't, they had no idea that Trump would uh, would end that kind of through their whole plan. Okay. Um, Trump Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, is a is a Jew. Very successful, very very wealthy, but somehow or another, he inveigled himself into the heart of of Trump's daughter. And Kushner, as all Jews, if they have two matrilineal Jewish mother and grandmother, he's an Israeli citizen. She converted to Judaism, if you want to call it that. That's a misnomer. At least to me, it's a misnomer. It's bullshit. And she is now a citizen of the state of Israel also, as Jared Kushner is. These people attach themselves to non-Jews of great influence and great power. Okay? I know people that are billionaires, ex-friends, ex-friends. They're still friends, except that I don't see them for many years because I have nothing in common with them anymore. But I, I know of one, and as soon as he went past the billion-dollar mark, he had an Israeli partner. They will attach themselves to where great wealth exists. They need to steer it. They need to, they need to make sure it goes where they want it or has the influence they want it to have. And they do a magnificent job. So does Trump know about what we're talking about here? I don't know. I put this, not this, but I put a manuscript in in the hands of Trump probably about eight years ago. It was the early version of my book, 343. And it did say a lot about Israel and 9-11. I put it in the hands of a guard and the lobby wouldn't let me upstairs. Says, I will make sure that Mr. Trump gets this on his desk. And I believe the man. And I believe Trump got it. Does Trump know of what we're talking about here? I don't know. We can say he's being very favorable to Israel. Is he? I don't know. Is he just doing things because he's clever? He's a lot smarter than I give him credit for. I call him stupid when it comes to social things and the idiot statements he makes, and I still do believe that. Uh, I think this part of it has been driven by strategy. But he, he alienates people at so many levels. I, I don't know how smart he is. But he's doing great things. He's eliminating regulations that have horn-tied us or hog-tied us, that hog-ties our, our businesses and our, country, our uh, companies. He's bringing work back here. He's putting industrialization back on a map in the United States, which is what Rothschild is moving out of our nation to make it more dependent or to make us weak and susceptible to war. Because as you look around the world, you have military powers. And Israel is arguably the second most powerful, military powerful nation in the world. It might be Russia. It might be China. Arguably, it might be Israel. They have every single piece of technological advance that we have. They're just a smaller country. But they, in the Negev desert, they have enormous amounts of research and power and tools. So are they able to, to, to defend themselves entirely? Absolutely, in the Middle East. Did they take Iran down by themselves? Absolutely. You have to read in the book that I gave to, to Steve and to Fred and to Betty and to Dee Dee, there was a phrase in there, the guns of America. Go find it. I didn't note it for you. In 1897, 
1897, the lecture was given with the term the guns of America. In 1897, he talked about rigging the bids to the debt of the country we live in. Federal Reserve. It's in this book in the 21st lecture in the third paragraph by artificial means, which was rigging the bids. My client was Solomon Brothers in New York. They got caught rigging the bids to the Federal Reserve debt. 1991. I was there when it happened. Part of the reason I'm here doing this show with you all tonight. These things weren't just threats in 1897. They have occurred with such clarity and such precision. You can't declare this to be an anti-Semitic tract. What you can do is when you combine it with, with Churchill's 1920 Bolshevism versus Zionism, you can begin to understand there is a small group of Jews that operate in the world like a mafia. But they use bonds and debt. They don't use bombs. They don't use knives. They use bonds. B-O-N-D-S. Performance bonds. And they surgically bring down companies and countries. Brilliantly. 9-11 was theirs. Were Americans involved? You bet. There were Americans involved assisting this. Did our country's government do it institutionally? Absolutely not. But there's enough power in our government that's taken over positions of power so that it can't be made public. Now, if what you have in your hands was in the hand of every single congressperson, Senate, and House rep, right, what you've read, the little bit you've read, how persuasive is that if that was in the hand of every single one of our members of Congress? Well, it, it, um, it gets right to, I mean, when, when you're reading about playing both sides against the middle and, and issuing the, the debt that finances uh, those wars, the power that that position, uh, anyone exercising that position is, extracts enormous power and leverage over over humanity. It's it's massive. Uh, forget about the money. It's the war, the execution of war, which is the tyranny of evil that, that's been... Uh, shrouding mankind, preventing us from rising up and rising to our uh, full potential as, as, you know, in love and in in awareness and in truth and in justice and in in happiness, all of that. It's the undercurrent of war and fear and division and separation has been... uh, executed by this cabal and and i mean uh, as a baby boomer uh vietnam <laughs> we all can remember uh the, the as a kid growing up you know he, he, who's gonna go uh, and then war after war after war it just it's been ongoing all over the world right. <clears throat> 
Can you guys hear? I don't know if, I, if I'm making any sense. Hello? We can hear you. Okay. Oh. Sorry about that. I pushed the wrong button. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Pat, we sound like a broken record, but, but you, what you have done here with this pamphlet is enshrined and crystallized that those three W A R war is 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 the is the one factor that we unfortunately uh, we don't examine the roots of uh, hard enough. But when you look at the funding, it is a war machine. <laughs> And, and when we talk about the Federal Reserve and banks, it's very complex, and people, their eyes glaze over, and they, and they fall asleep. But when you bring up war, the mechanics of war, and how this, 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 is, the one, this is the war machine. It's done a brilliant job. Thank you. Yep. For centuries. Yeah. Uh, I've got four, four things I'd like you to talk about. Uh, at number one, the Jews are really not Jews, they're Khazars. Jews are not Jews, they're Khazars, number one. Number two, the Talmud. Number three, uh, the Rothschilds got rid of the Lincoln Greenbacks, which he used to finance the Civil War. And number four, do you talk about the Talmud? Yep, I can do a little bit of that. We're having some background noise from someone over there. I'm not sure who it is, but um, I know there's other people with, that are unmuted waiting to ask questions, so just be aware that we can hear some of your background noise. The yeah. Talmud is an interesting document, and it was uh, oral law. It was never really committed to paper till the late 19th century. Um, it's, it's heinous in its hatred for Christianity and for Jesus. Absolutely heinous. And all Jews don't follow that Talmud. Many do. And I would suggest that those that do don't even know the hatred they have for Christianity, although I believe many of them, many of them really do. So the, the logic there is if somebody hates me, I hate them back. That's not Christian. I don't. I get accused of being anti-Semitic routinely because I will talk about the Jews candidly. And I look at people, and, I, and here, my, here's my best answer. I got a guy uh, said to me back six years ago, he said, that was an anti-Semitic comment. And I laughed. And he says, it's not a funny thing. And I said, Steve, I said, let's understand something. You're, you're accusing me of anti-Semitism. Um, who, who, who is a Semite? And Steve looks at me. He's in my car. I'd done something. I'd done a favor. And I knew him from New York, my days in New York. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, who's a Semite? Are you a Semite? He says, of course I am. I said, well, wait a minute. A Semite is somebody, it's one of the five Aramaic, uh, speaks the five, one of the five Aramaic languages and or Hebrew. I said, do you speak one of the Aramaic languages or Hebrew? And he looked at me and he says, well, no, but I'm a Jew. I said, well, just a second on that. I said, the Hebrews of antiquity were around the time of Christ. 
But the word Jew didn't come around until about 460 AD. That was 500 years after Christ was crucified by the, the Pharisees. And he's looking at me, he says, what are you talking about? I said, the word Jew isn't in a lexicon of any language in the world for almost 500 years after Christ was killed. The, the Jews are all, they're all Russians. You're a Russian. You haven't got a drop of Semitic blood in your veins. Well, I'm sitting close to him in a car and I'm, I'm getting ready to put my hand up to block his punch. And unlike most times when you get a Jew pissed off, put his head down. I said, Steve, I says, I know. And there are millions of other people that are learning daily. Don't pull that shit on people again. You have no relationship to the Hebrews of antiquity. You didn't come out of the place called Judea. You weren't related to the Sumerian Judeans. But you're a Russian, and it doesn't make you a bad person. But don't hijack Christianity or Hebraic beliefs. I said, you're not a Jew, or you're not a Hebrew. Well, I got total silence out of him. We never really spoke about that subject again. So you got to be careful. The Talmud, I, I don't know the full origin of the Talmud. The Talmud means oral law. And um, much like many of the uh, uh, tribal uh, fathers in Africa and even, I think, Indians, they only had it orally. They passed it down generation to generation. But in the late 1800s, early 1900s, Somebody committed the Talmud to a paper, and there are some very heinous comments about Christianity, and we are lower than dogs, and you can kill us and steal from us. You can rape our, our wives and our children. It's, it's gruesome. So yeah, we're Goyim. I, I can't, yeah, I can't, yeah, Goyim, and, and I can't speak to that. Originally, Goyim meant original Jew, and then it became a pejorative for non-Jew or Christians. And I can't speak to that. I kid Jewish friends that I've got about it. And I say, I know all about that. Do you believe that? No, no. I said, really? I said, I had Passover with friends that were Jews one time, and I found out they did break all their dishes up, and they threw them in the garbage when I left. And <laughs> the guy I told that to looked at me. He says, you're kidding. I said, no, I'm not kidding. He says, well, I must have been very old-fashioned, meaning I know. <laughs> there, are, there are historical uh, things that the Jews do that I find offensive. And they do keep it quiet amongst themselves. So speaking to that, I don't know what I can tell you other than I'll turn my other cheek. My goal is to win them over, which may be impossible. But my goal is to win them over and get them to understand Rothschild is killing them by the thousands, even today. He doesn't give a shit for the Jews. They don't give a shit for the Jews. They live too well. They're on the move. Maybe someday if they take over the world, the Jews will be in a respected position. Maybe not. Or it may happen after millions and millions more Jews are killed. In the meantime, the Rothschilds may get caught. And that is one of the things that I want the Jews to understand. The Rothschilds will get caught. And they better get off that ship now before it sinks. And the best way for them to get off that ship is to come over here to my side and point the finger back over at that side. Now, I may be a Don Quixote here, but that's the belief I have, and I think it can be achieved. So I can't hate the Jews. I just can't. Not in my makeup. Thank you for the question, Sam. Uh, I, I heard Al's voice earlier. 
Uh, Alec, you wanted to chime in? Feel free. I think, I think that we are seeing uh, the same situation that we saw in, in 19... Oh, that's that? you. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, Al, go ahead. I think that we're seeing the same situation we saw in the 1920s and 1930s in Europe again with Germany. Germany uh, was destroyed by the debt and the bankers and gave rise to Hitler. Germany is rising again. And I don't think that the, the reformation of what's going to happen worldwide, at least in Europe and North America, is going to happen in North America. It's going to happen in Europe again. Germany is dominating uh, Europe and taking over hunks and hunks and hunks of it by simply growing its economy. It's part of the German population that has that understands what, what, what Pat's talking about. Uh, and I think that's where the, where the change is going to come from and not from the United States. And with that, I'm just going to meet with myself and just hear what Pat has to say about my comments. Well, I, I've watched, and I think Germany has got a problem going on because of its stupid immigration policies, and that was instituted by Jewish philosophy, Jewish planning. Uh, they've got so many Muslims in there, and I, I disagree. And I, I, by the way, I have, no, um, I have no factual proof to disagree. It's an instinct. I disagree that Germany is doing these things and taking this over, taking that over. I think Germany, I think Europe as a whole is screwed because they've adopted all these socialist programs. They're essentially socialism. And they've got these millions and millions of hostile immigrants on soil, but very dangerous immigrants. I mean, our immigrants coming out of South America and such in Mexico are bad, and they're not all bad. And I know in the middle of them we have Middle Easterners, but not to the degree Germany has. And I think that ultimately the United States will, in fact, bail the world's ass out. We're 50 states. We're 50 different countries, just like Europe, except it was put together a little differently. Uh, we're a democratic republic. We're not a democracy. Um, and we have major, major problems because uh, the folks we speak of here have managed to do such a brilliant job at our universities. We've lost two generations. Two generations have been lost to this bullshit, and we have lost them at the university level. We haven't lost them at the working man level. And the working man level, I'll put my money on that. I'll put my money on that working man level over a university kid any day of the week. I don't want to see anybody killed, but the Democrats may come to rely more on the validity of the Second Amendment than anybody who's out there espousing the Second Amendment that's a Republican. I think we're going to get to a shooting war, and I think it'll be over very quickly. Our government may or may not be as involved as it would like to be, um, and I, I feel bad for that. I hope it doesn't happen. I would like to see it not happen, and if it can, if it can be avoided, that's wonderful. But I think change throughout the world will still come from this country. It's not going to come from Germany. Germany did, in fact, suffer an awful lot, but they suffered many things for many different reasons. And the banking was part of it. Uh, and the major component of, of, of Germany's failure was allowing Hitler to rise to the position of the, that he was of such power and of such limited intellect. He looked at things in a black and white way without looking too deep. He just said, the Jews have done this to us. They're out to take everything. He got to understand. He probably read these protocols that 
that Fred and, and Betty and Dee Dee and Steve have got in their hands right now. He read these and said, this is what the Jews are doing. We can see it. And you can, you can see it. And, and Hitler just went over the edge. But Hitler did have Jews in his uh, Gestapo. He had Jews in his government. He had Jews that were doing things for him. Now, were they turncoats or otherwise? I don't know. But I don't, I don't see Germany being the savior that you've outlined. I, I see us having a great deal of fracture coming up badly, and I worry for my kids and my grandchildren. I don't know if it's going to stop. Um, and it's not easy to convince these kids who are shutting down free speech in our universities now. These universities have been led down the path by the, this sinister confederacy that Churchill named them in 1920. They're there. They're agents. Warriors without a uniform. They're in civilian clothes. They're in our law firms. They're in our financial institutions, and they're in our educational institutions. But we have a greater number of American youth on the street that didn't go to these universities, and I have great faith in their values. Their values have also been changed to the negative, the divorce and sex and materialism, to be sure, but it's just too vast a country in too many places. And we have too many good people in this country. They're still here. So I, I would disagree with you respectfully. I have a question. Yes, ma'am. This is Betty. Uh, yes, Betty. How does the, because you said the title of your book is, is 343. Uh, 343, the book is going to what it's going right. to be. So, how does this whole atrocity of 9-11 fit into all the scheme of things? In, 18, in 1980, 1979 through 1981, Michael Milken, working for Drexel Burnham Lambert, created the subprime mortgage-backed security, meaning, hey, we've got subprime mortgages. They were, they were invented by Greenpoint Savings and Loan in Brooklyn back in the 1950s. And they were they were loans that were sub were made to people who couldn't afford them or to people with bad credit, but the difference was those loans were portfolioed. They were put into Greenpoint Savings and Loans vault. They didn't sell a loan, so Greenpoint Savings and Loan took the risk exclusively on their shoulders. That was a loan. That was a mortgage. In 1979, 1980. When they began this process, Michael Milken came back or he came up with this subprime mortgage-backed security, meaning, hey, we can create a performance bond and we can make it fail. And when it fails, there's a dislocation of equity throughout the world, not just in the United States, and we can capitalize on it. And it's my theory that that was expanded to be able to create the opportunity for 9-11 which, in fact, 9-11 created the, the visual effect, the graphic effect, so that the American public would say, get those bastards, and it put the enormous force of the U.S. military into the Middle East for the purposes Israel had, not for us. But you can't get the American public support unless you do something dramatic, like a Pearl Harbor, and I don't know how Pearl Harbor came about. God only knows if, the, if this syndicate was involved there. I, don't, I won't get into that because I can't see that. I can see it and prove it here, but that was the primary reason, the secondary and tertiary and 
the, the many, many other reasons for 9-11. They were there. They benefited many, many people, many agendas. But the primary reason was to put to justify to the American public the use of the U.S. military in the Middle East. We couldn't have gone in the Middle East with the support of the American public without 9-11. That was what 9-11 was for. So 9-11 started with Michael Milken creating the subprime mortgage-backed security, which meant you did these subprime mortgages. They were not guaranteed by the bank, and you would put them into a $2 billion trust, and you'd slice and dice them according to the credit worthiness of the tranche and sell them to investors for 8 and 9% return. Did Michael Milken know they were going to fail? I don't know if he was just a soldier, a useful idiot, or if he was one of the guys way up. I don't know. When you go back to McCarthy and the, the communist hearings that he had with Cohen, his right-hand man, his gay, alcoholic, uh, Jewish lawyer, who was part of this, the whole thing that took McCarthy down, McCarthy knew there were communist cells in this country. And they were Jewish-run, jewish incubated and they did things individual without the knowledge of the next cell. So did Michael Milken know what he was doing that would lead to nine 11? I don't know. I'll just tell you that it matches the, the modus operandi of what was uncovered about communist cells operating within our country back in the 1950s. So Michael Milken developed a subprime mortgage backed security, which took on billions and billions of dollars worth of mortgages and then you had Solomon Brothers, my client, invent the credit default swap. And then you had AIG take and make a market in swaps. And you had the three real big players doing those things. And they reached a point of success. They needed to put it on steroids. And the steroids came about, 9-11 happened. You'll never understand much of what really took place on 9-11 until you know what Alan Greenspan did on 9-13. 9-13, Alan Greenspan went before Congress and said, well, our financial markets were hurt yesterday, two days ago. I'm repairing that. <coughs> he says, I'm, I'm lowering the Fed rate by 100 basis points. That was one full point. And when Alan Greenspan lowered the Fed rate on 9-13, Everybody sat up and said, holy shit. They reestablished their interest in our stock market. Because if the Fed rate dropped, they could get a better return to the market, and they could borrow money from the Fed or through the Fed, through their bank for less money, and invest it in the stock market, which is what they did to us with the margin accounts from 1927 through 1928, 29. So that was only the first step. Alan Greenspan came back 21 more times back to back from 913 until two years later. He just kept dropping that Fed rate 22 times back to back. Alan Greenspan's a citizen of the state of Israel. So he got, he got taken out. Then you got uh, Ben Shalom Bernanke. He wasn't the first Irishman to take over the Federal Reserve. We know that. And he kept on doing Greenspan's policy, reversed them, and jumped around a little bit. And then we had next Israeli citizen came in was Janet Yellen, <laughs> another Israeli under Rothschild. How about that? And she came in with a unique set of credentials that brought in uh, Joe Schmo. I forget who he was, his name. But he, he had to resign his position on the 
Central Bank of Israel to take a backup position to Janet Yellen in case she got ran over by a bus. He'd immediately, he was approved to immediately take our seat. Then lo and behold, oh my God, what happened? This guy Trump wins. He brings in Powell, William Powell, I think, whatever his name is. I forget what his first name is. So uh, you've got to look at the nationalities of these people, which is what a political culture says we can't do. You've got to be politically correct. Their nationality doesn't have a bullshit. You've got to go to the nationalities. You've got to understand the nature of their nationalities. How do they get citizenship in two countries? All of those things come to play in evaluating where we are and how we've gotten to where we are and where we might be going. So, in answer to your question, I hope that's helped a little bit. Yes, it helps. Hello. Yes. Uh, this is Renee. You know, I Hi, think Renee. I think this would say the problem. If we get away from the idea of empire, you know, we stray away. You know, the thing is, we wouldn't have an Israel today if it had not been for the whole thing with the Balfour Agreement and, and you know the. Uh, setting up this whole state of Israel by England and America. And see, these people have long-range plans. They have been warning the Middle East literally since the time of Jesus, okay? The thing is, um, at that time, it was the Roman Empire, okay? Now it's the, you know, the Anglo-American Empire. Now, in the time of Jesus, the Romans from Europe were occupying... You know, the area of Palestine where the Jews were, okay? Now, the thing is, and what brought this up in my mind is I, I, I know it's a, it's a very common misconception because they took over Christianity and they kind of flipped the script. The thing is, when Jews killed somebody, they would stone them. The, the Romans were the occupiers, so they were the legal authority at the time. And if you can look it up on Wikipedia, crucifixion was a, a method of, of killing people. That was a Roman. See, the Romans killed Jesus, okay, because they were the occupying government authority, uh, occupying released, okay? So everybody says the Jews killed Jesus when, in fact, it was the Romans who killed Jesus. And then now, like I said, so, and I'm so glad to differentiate between Jews, see, because the original Jews were the brown people living around Palestine, but it's like you said, these other Jews that are really causing most of the problem are the converts, the Ashkenazi Jews, okay, who are really uh, kind of uh, taking over and actually discriminate against the brown original Palestinian Jews, okay, but so the thing is, would it be, I, you have to kind of almost have a little empathy for the people in the Middle East because they've been fighting off empires now, literally for thousands of years, because they say it was first the Romans going over there, and then, and then now the Anglo-American Empire going over there. Renee, if you could pose a question to Pat, uh, that would help. There's uh, a... That, that ties into that comment. If you could pose a question at the end of that comment, that would help. 
Well, like I said, I, I just I wish uh, anybody who wants to know would look it up. It, it, it's in Wikipedia. Just put in crucifixion, and you'll you'll see that this was actually a Roman method of of uh, killing people, and they were the occupying government. Or now, I'd like to know what he thinks. Okay, go ahead. I just I disagree, and the reason I disagree is, man who pulls the trigger isn't the man that gave the order. And the order was given to get Jesus by the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were the high priests of the Hebraic faith at the time. And when you when you track the Sanhedrin, they're all Pharisees. Pharisee is a word in our language today, and one of the meanings is hypocrite. And Pharisees were known as Phariasism which wound up being the chosen religion or faith of King Bulan in Khazaria at about 460, 480 A.D. So the decision to kill Jesus is what killed him. It wasn't the man who nailed him to the cross or the group of people that nailed him to the cross. That's number one. Number two, the word Jew wasn't even the lexicon then. They didn't have Jews. There were no Jews. Jesus Christ was never a Jew. Jesus Christ was a Hebrew. And the Hebrews of antiquity and the Jews of today are two different groups of people. I agree. They're two different bloodlines. So it, it has no bearing, though, on whether Jesus was killed at that time by what was the Pharisees or what became the Jews. The fact of the matter is we can track these people back to a certain level. And Rothschild currently is, in the past 200 years, the bone contention, the more brilliant of the people ex- exercising, executing war throughout the world. And if we don't know that, we're going to be forever lost. So it's important that someplace very quickly, in fact, what we're talking about here is in the hands of the leaders of the governments of the world. And I am prepared to make that happen. But aren't aren't there members of a lot of the British royals intermarried with the Rothschilds? They may be. Who cares? What difference does it make? Well, in other words, like I say, you know, uh, it's like I say, I I don't think it's just the Rothschilds, okay? Because actually it was Churchill and all those people who were setting up that whole thing. I, I think, see, I think... They make long-range plans, and a lot of this was the Anglo-American Empire's long-term desire to stick Jews in the middle over there. It was kind of almost a long-range plot, okay, for going to take over the Middle East, okay, just like both empires had tried to do for so long. And like I said, the thing is, the Jews, it's whoever has power, the governmental power, okay? The thing is, I don't see how the religious people in the country who was occupied by a more powerful governing authority make the order, okay, because they're the the people who are occupied and being dominated. I don't see how they can give the order to make the Roman occupiers kill somebody. I understand how they uh, uh, might be fearful and uh, go along with and something. You know what I mean? I don't. Okay. I understand understand why you believe what you believe. 
the fact that one Jew using the techniques they do is equal to maybe 500 to 2,000 of a kingdom, whether they were high up in the kingdom or not. And one of the best things a Jew or anybody selling something can do is to have somebody do something believing they did it because they wanted to. And it brings me back to what Fred asked me, the first, the second, two and three people behind. We see changes in our culture. You'll never see a Jew touching the liver, the lever of that change. He will always be nudging somebody, whether it's Paul Rand, which I don't think he can, uh, or other people in our government to come up with a bill to do this or a bill to do that. But rarely will you see a Jew pushing it. They're stuck right now, and that's why they've got Chuck Schumer out front and why they have uh, Adam Schiff out front. They would love not to have those two birds up front, but they're stuck. They haven't got a goyim that can run the leadership on their behalf like those two Jewish guys or those two sinister confederacy members. So typically they're always in the background and they're never seen up front. And whether they're using the King of England or the children of the King or whoever, you take Andrew. Andrew was used in Jeffrey Epstein's plans to be able to videotape him. So if Andrew gets to be a popular or a ruling uh, figure in, in England someday, they've got him by the shorts or by the video, if you will. So they always work two and three people behind the scenes. So all of what you're saying, yeah, it's plausible, but it doesn't make any difference. The fact of the matter is, it's decision-maker that counts, not the person who pulls the trigger. Well, let's say these groups work in collusion together because the Jews being such a small segment of the population, they never could have gotten away with what they did without cooperation from a lot of goyim, okay? The, the, in many ways, the goyim have allowed it and embraced them in some ways, and they have used each other. You understand what I mean? Well, no, I, I don't. Again, I, I understand what you're trying to say, and I couldn't disagree more. What you're failing to understand, I don't like to use that word to another human being, but what you're failing to understand is how psychology works amongst different groups and different goals. And psychology is far more powerful than you can understand. And when it looks like somebody... I'm just, I'm, I'm just, I'm just stupid. Yeah. No, you're not stupid. It's just, Renee, Renee, we're going to have one more person to pose a yeah. comment. Please. Okay. One more... Thank you, Renee. Anybody else? One one other person. We're going to wrap this show up. Yeah, Pat. Uh, um, Pat, this is Steve. I want to jump in real quick. With I just want to get your opinion. And by the way, great book. I, I just am really, really impressed with that. Um, it's just a, it's a ton of resources you have in there. So congratulations on it, and thank you so much for sending that to us. Uh, I just want your opinion um, about the uh, um, uh, Facebook. CEO uh, trying to get his own cryptocurrency going. This Libra. What's your What's your thinking on that? Is I, I, I don't I don't know. I, I've watched the Bitcoin thing. I've been almost seduced into buying it, and yeah. there's a small part of me uh, kind of uh, devilishly believing that it, it, it's a bailout currency for Rothschild, yeah. and that the, uh, the Japanese guy supposedly invented it is just you know uh, a creation. 
Yes, they um, manipulate it. They manipulate it. They, they really do. It's yeah. Controlled. So, uh, so um, Bitcoin, Bitcoin may be a replacement, but yeah. Rothschild succeeded. I think he succeeded beyond his wildest dreams mm-hmm. to uh, make the U.S. currency the world currency, which is what their goal was. Right. right and, and oddly enough, Trump is tearing that down because mm-hmm. in his trade wars and everything else, evening things out, He's, he's, I think he's assisting the other currencies of the world to replace or, let's say, to compete better with the dollar. Up until uh, now, the dollar is the world currency, de facto world currency. And that was the main goal of Rothschild, because if you can, if you take a look, I think, what is it, on the second page? Right. Third page. Take a look. Third page. Let mm-hmm. me issue and control a nation. I cross the word nations out and put world currency. Right. I care not who writes its law. Of course. That's allegedly a quote by him back in 1912. Yeah. And the key there is understanding the difference between currency and money. Right. Currency is a representation of money that's uh, elusive because it can change daily. And right. um, Bitcoin or Libra, uh, they will be currencies. They will not be money. And the world has reached the point there's no way we can use metal or, or, or gold to represent a monetary system any longer. I mean, we can try, but I think it's an elusive thing, and I think it's fabricated in people's brains to believe that, that can be. So people do buy gold and hoard it and do what they do with it. But uh, if gold was ever attempted to be used again as a world currency, an house would probably be worth $40 million. There's just not enough gold to make it function because... When you talk about world currency, you talk about world debt. Right. The Federal Reserve note is debt. It's not money. It's definitely not money. Right. It can be currency and be viewed as money, but it's not money. It's currency and it's debt. Right. So when we pass that note between ourselves and people in other nations, it is a, uh, a, a means of commerce. Right. Um, I have often said there is a solution to all of this. Uh, and that is to uh, make the Federal Reserve make up differently. And I won't go into that. It gets to be too long a story. I've thought about that a lot, and I probably I don't know much en- enough about it to come up with a solution. But I think I have a solution for it. So uh, I I, uh, I don't know how to answer the Bitcoin question. It's there. It's speculative. Uh, the Libra thing from uh, Zuckerberg. Uh, he is. He's, he, he has enough money and enough power behind him to understand a hell of a lot more of what we're talking about here than we will in this conversation. Because once he reaches a certain momentum and power, he's going to be drawn into the inside, without a doubt. Um, yeah, he wants to get like his part. Press. He wants to get his well, part. So I think it's why he's jumping in. I don't know about oh. part. I, I think it comes to a point of power more than anything else. It's got, sure. not, it's got very little to do with money. Yeah. Um, you're you're uh, you're somebody on the inside of what's going to happen in the world. So um, I think we've had a transfer of information on a daily basis to the degree now where all of these people we speak about they're at great risk. Mm-hmm. They are at great risk because if if one word of any of this is provable to the masses. Uh, these people can't, they cannot put an army together quick enough to stop them from being taken out and hung in their front yards. Can't, I wouldn't be able to. And I would not be in favor of that because to a, an ironic 
degree, an ironic point, they stabilize things. They keep it stable. The, the monetary system that the world enjoys, multiple or singular or otherwise, is very fragile. Very fragile. And uh, there's a lot of good people out there. I mean, very learned people that, that understand the things they do on a daily basis to keep them tuned. I wouldn't even begin to understand it, nor would you. We can talk about it like right now, but we, we would we can do it in a jealous way. And I'm not jealous of anybody. I, I, have a, I have a real curiosity about how it all works. And I don't think there's anybody out there that could explain it, even a Rothschild. What, what I think they can do is they can impact things. They can make things happen. And more often than not, Rothschild knows how to make war. That's what he does. He creates conflict. So we, we live in very challenging times, especially if we have children and grandchildren. The Jews have been kicked out of 109 countries. The Jews have been kicked out of 109 countries. They have. They're going to be kicked out of And they're going to be kicked out of the United States once the United States people find out what they're up to. Well, I, I would disagree with that. Well, first of all, I won't disagree that that's a possibility. Well, well, I, I, would not, I would not want to be a part of that because it's too many I would. people are coming to Jews. I, I, I know, because, understand. They cause World War One and World War Two, and are going to cause World War Three. Well, again, I don't think the Jews are doing that. I think there's a select group of them that just happen to be Jews that are doing it in a very determined way. I would agree with yeah. that. Yeah, the Ashkenazi Jews. Yeah, well, uh, there's a lot of good. There's a lot of Ashkenazi Jews that are good people too. Well, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. So I, I would not I would not want to brand all of them and take them out and round them up and do what Hitler did. I think that was that was one of the that was one of the biggest failures in the history of the world was what Hitler did. Um, and he got his he got his just desserts on that. Pat, I just wanted to, to kind of I'll put a bow tie on this. I'd like to make a statement and then ask you uh, one final question. Uh, sure. Compared to when we started this show 12 years ago, working with Bob Schultz, Aaron Russo, and then you look at now, the amount of information that's creatively coming out from the alt-right media, the non-controlled, non-mainstream media is just amazing. It's overwhelming. It's powerful. It's transcendent. And uh, the information that you have here, when properly targeted and positioned, in a positive, uh, structured, creative way can definitely move this mountain, this obstruction that you're talking about. Because there are a lot of people that are, 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 are scared to death of that third rail you're talking about. <laughs> they don't want to touch it. They don't want to go there. But if we can find, if you can find a way to arm them with this information to show the causal connection to the, this tip of the spear as you describe it. Uh, I, I, there's just so many people who are doing wonderful work on YouTube, despite all the deplatforming that's going on, they're still cranking away, and it's, it's pretty amazing. Uh, a gentleman that you may want to check up, and I'll send you the link after the show, is Dr. Stephen Turley. He talks about the rise of populism, conservatism, traditional values, family all over the world these countries are rising up into embracing forms of conservative populism conservative values family values all over the world they're rejecting globalism they're rejecting communism they're rejecting socialism and uh and as this is happening your information could be perfectly timed 
to transform the awareness of, 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 of thousands, millions of people all over the world. Well, and I want to uh, say thank you. Thank you for the compliment. Um, the, uh, I'm going to leave you, anybody out there that has a pencil and a piece of paper, I'm going to leave you with some homework. Okay. Um, the Constitution of the United States is an empowering document. It doesn't tell us what we can't do. It tells us what we only can do. Okay, we don't understand that. We don't have constitutionally created rights. We have constitutionally protected rights. Okay? I personally don't find any place in the Constitution that allows the government to take two and three and six months worth of my labor away. It's my property. It's called a tax. When the Federal Reserve was created, Rothschild needed our military to continue to grow to be the most powerful for him to use. He needed money in the system to be able to do that. He didn't want this country to sit idly by and be impacted by foreign nations. He wanted this country to be able to rise up and have the single most powerful military in the world. I'm not so sure I'm disagreeing with that either, by the way. But in order to do that, he needed to create an accounting system that generated that money. Constitution, to my take of it, doesn't do that. Doesn't give the right. Doesn't give the power. You got to understand also the distinction between the word power and authority. Constitution authorizes. Government has power. Now, if it's authorized power, it's okay. But if it's power without authority, it's not good. It's bad. So I don't see any authorized power in our Constitution or in our government to put a tax on my property. You can call it an income tax. You can call it anything you like. I don't think you got the. I don't think you have the authority from that Constitution. It doesn't give you the authority. But Rothschild had to have. An income tax, which is the reason, Fred, you and I are chatting at all right now. But Rothschild had to have a tax on the population in order to come through the Federal Reserve, RON, et cetera, et cetera, in order to justify taking of our labor at the end of a month, at the end of a, a quarter, or at the end of a year, and giving it over to government. Government was designed to make money from duties and excises, those kinds of practices. So, they contrived the scheme. They said, as long as these are the people, we the people, they're the ones that wrote this constitution. Then we entered the, the world of jurisdiction. We have to take and put a different jurisdiction on these people. And to make them employees of the government, then no longer the people of the, of, the, of the country. They were employees of the government. As employees of this government, then we can take their tax, we can tax their income. You understand the logic of that thinking? So if yeah. we became the employee of the federal government, we take our money, period. And we can scream all we like and have to pay them from January through June or January through May. That's just tough shit. We're going to have to give them that money because we're employed by the government. Here's where you use your pen and paper. Title V, Section 552A, Sub 13.
want you all to read that. Taking this down, I want you to tell me, do you believe that because you can collect your retirement income from Social Security, you are an employee of the federal government? The federal government believes it. Because of that one little thing, there is what's called a adhesion contract. A contract made by one party with all the power and nobody that the contract is made with has any power in the contract. These contracts are made now. They're made before you're brought home from the hospital because the hospitals in the United States won't allow the mother to take the child home until a piece of paper is signed and a social security number is assigned. Now, you didn't sign that agreement, but you've got a social security number. You're subject to a retirement income by the United States. You are called, whether you like it or not, federal personnel. And when you look in the same Title V section to look up the meaning of the word personnel, you'll see it says employee. That's an adhesion contract that a judge in any federal court understands and never speaks about and gives him jurisdiction or the sense of jurisdiction over you as a tax protester, as somebody that didn't do the tax that you should have paid, et cetera, et cetera. You weren't of age. You didn't agree to it. But you did move further along in life, and you paid that Social Security tax when you were 15, 18, 30, 40, 50, and then you began to collect it at age 63. So without your knowledge but with your cooperation, you committed to being a employee of the federal government. Now get that pen out again. I'm going to give you one more. Title 12, the banking statutes. Title 5, by the way, is the Social Security. It's the records statute or, or uh, section of law, I should say. Title 12, which is the ba- our banking statutes, Section 531. Title 12, Section 531. We know that the Federal Reserve is a privately owned bank. Read that one sentence to see where everything they earn as owners of the Federal Reserve is statutorily exempt from federal, state, and city taxes. Uh, not, only, not only everything that they earn from ownership of the Federal Reserve is statutorily free of taxes, but everything they invest that money in and earn subsequent profits from is also statutorily free of taxation uh-huh. and free of state taxation. There's a lot of questions you can ask. If the, if the Federal Reserve is supposed to be and believed to be owned by the federal government, why do we have a statute exempting the owners of the stock, capital stock of the Federal Reserve? Why do we have a statute that says it's tax-free? The private corporation. How does, a federal, how does a federal government get to declare taxes owed to a state or not payable to a state? They don't. It was passed in 1929-30 by Federal Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So I'll leave you with those last two things to ponder. Take a look, review them, and ponder them. And if you do have them, just put them on the side, and if I come back, if I'm graced with the opportunity to come back again, you can ask me more questions about them. Absolutely. <laughs> Federal Reserve is a private corporation, and Roosevelt was a Jew. I don't know, and I don't care if he was a Jew or he wasn't a Jew. It has no bearing on anything, quite frankly, really. Hey, everyone, uh, uh, we're going to close out the call here. We're going to close out the call. Uh, 
Thank you, Dr. Sam. Thank you, Alfred, Betty, Steve, Dee those listening on talk show and elsewhere. Uh, we're going to stay in touch with Patrick. Uh, probably not. He won't come on until next year. So let's do some study. Let's support this pamphlet, this cause. His book is going to be out eventually. Uh, but this is good information. And uh, we hope to be able to share this in a different format going forward. But we have uh, a, a really good example of something very powerful in our hands that we received today, thanks to Patrick, overnight at FedEx. Right. Uh, a big thank you to Patrick for sending this. Uh, the first eight pages are critical, uh, and the rest of it is all critical information uh, that uh, is definitely going to be worth worthwhile <laughs> learning about and sharing. So Good I've talked out, guys. <laughs> thank you, Patrick. Good night, everyone. Good and by the way, we're going to be talking Thank about you. the Kurds and Turkey next it's, week. Our guest is going to be talking about uh, Kurdistan and Turkey and et cetera next week. Cool. Hey, is that, lady, is that that lady still on? Is that lady still on that's just talking about the Eskenazi Sheila? And I want to talk to her. Yeah, well, uh, she's still on. We got to pull in. Still on. Yeah, yeah, I want to talk to her. Good night, guys. We're going to do the wrap. Thanks, Steve. Yeah. Thanks, Dee Dee. All right. God bless. We'll send the link to Patrick later. The audio link. Thanks, guys. Good night. Good night, Fred. Okay, who's who's that lady who's on? Hold on. American Underground Network. Is that lady on now? Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.